Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Learning Out Loud. Today we are joined by Jordan Michael Geller. Jordan is a perfect example of someone who turned his passion and niche into a career and business. He is a sneaker collector who founded the world's first sneaker museum. He also is certified by Guinness World Records for having the largest sneaker collection. He has auctioned off shoes at a record-breaking price of over $500,000. His latest work involves being sought after for the new movie Air about Michael Jordan and Nike. We hope you enjoy. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I gathered up four fun pairs. Awesome. Got those ready to go. Yeah. Are nice. you in the office right now or your house or? Uh, I actually have a home office that I work from. And so that's where I'm at. That's cool. Um, okay. So do you need us to, I know I sent you the link, but do you need me to explain like in words, anything that we're like trying to get out of this or? I uh, didn't rehearse anything. So there's, there's really nothing to rehearse. <laughs> yeah. I'm just here to have a conversation with you guys about okay. all of those things that you okay awesome so I guess um and I started recording it so I guess the first thing that would be beneficial is to just explain how you got into all this so how did the interest with shoes start and then how did all this come after that okay so I've always loved sneakers ever since I was a kid and when I was growing up my dad ran 10 marathons and he wore Nikes when he ran his races. And he used to take me to the sneaker stores with him and show me all the latest running shoes. And I fell in love with them and also the basketball shoes. My name is Jordan Michael Geller. So I always felt a real strong connection to Michael Jordan. And so I really gravitated towards his shoes. At a very early age, I dreamed of owning Air Jordans, but my parents wouldn't buy them for me because they were too expensive and my foot was growing. When I was a kid, we had a rule that we could spend 60 bucks on a pair of shoes and we'd get two new pairs of shoes each year. And 60 bucks definitely would not buy Air Jordans. They bought like the middle of the line Nikes. And I always dreamed of owning the top of the line ones, but never could. So Growing up being named Jordan Michael and then having a dad who was running marathons in Nikes made me really start to fall in love with Nike sneakers. And when I was growing up, it was really like the prime time of innovation at Nike. So Nike Air was invented. The first Air Jordan came out. The first Air Max running shoe came out. And every year, new models of Nikes would come out. And I always thought that they were cooler than the previous ones. And I couldn't wait for the next pair to come out. Uh, So, you know, I always just had a love for these sneakers. When I went away to college, I bought my first pair of Air Jordans. My parents were giving me $600 a month to help with my bills and my living expenses. And I was like, okay, now I got some money. I can finally buy my first pair of Air Jordans. So I bought those shoes and I wore them with such care. Like I didn't walk around in dirt or mud or grass or anything like that. And I tried to kind of walk around on the heels so that I wouldn't grease the toes. And after wearing those shoes for about four years, they were the black and red Air Jordan 11s. Uh, After wearing those shoes for four years, 
I found out that Nike was going to be retroing them. And so I would have a chance to buy a brand new pair of them. And way back then, retroing shoes was not a normal thing. I mean, they really didn't retro shoes. And so when I found out that my favorite shoes were coming out again, I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get these because I may never have another chance to get them. And of course, I was a broke college student. I didn't have any money. And I decided that I would try to sell my used pair of Air Jordans and come up with some money to be able to buy the new pair that was coming out. So I used eBay. And back then, there were no digital cameras. So I actually had to take pictures of my shoes with a real camera that had film and go get the film developed and then scan the actual pictures to get them onto a computer. I mean, it was so archaic, but I created my first eBay listing and my used Air Jordans ended up selling for $167.50. And the brand new ones that were coming out were only $125. So I got to wear and enjoy my shoes for four years. I made more money off of them than I paid for them. I was able to buy a brand new pair and pocket, you know, about 30 bucks or something after paying sales tax. So I discovered eBay as a marketplace to sell sneakers, but I didn't really start a business back then. It was just like, okay, well, this works. I actually did sell some more of my own personal shoes on eBay, just like ones that were in my closet they'd sell for 50 bucks or 75 bucks. And I was like, okay, well, eBay is the place to sell sneakers. But I graduated from college and I went off to law school. And the first year of law school is really intense. I mean, all you're doing is reading and studying and struggling. At least that, that was my first year of law school. And when I got done with my first year of law school, I was still a broke student just living off of financial aid, I went to a swap meet. I, I went to law school in San Diego at University of San Diego. And there was a weekly swap meet that happened at the sports arena in the parking lot. So all these vendors would come together and just lay out all their stuff and sell it. And I'm sure that the reason why I was at the swap meet is because I had no money to begin with. So I couldn't go to the mall to buy stuff because that stuff was too expensive. So I'm you know, at the swap meet walking around. And there's this vendor that's selling Nikes and they were brand new shoes. They didn't have the boxes though, but it was like a left and a right shoe and they were tied together and they were just on the floor of the parking lot and there were tons of them. And a lot of them were great shoes like Dunks and Air Force Ones and Hirachis. And the guy was selling the shoes for $20 a pair. And I thought, wow, I could definitely sell these shoes for more money on eBay. I mean, I remembered my experience with eBay right away. And so I went to the ATM and at the time I had about $300 to my name. So I cleared out my checking account, grabbed my 300 bucks, went back up to the vendor. I had the money in my hand and I was like, hey, you know, this is all the money that I have, $300. I wanna buy some of your shoes. Will you sell me 20 pairs for 300 bucks? And he said, sure. So I bargained him down to 15 bucks a pair I gave him my 300 bucks. I spent the next half an hour or so picking through all of his shoes, picking out the best ones. And I brought them home to my apartment and I took pictures of them and put them on eBay. And at this point, now I had a digital camera. So the process was a lot 
simpler to take pictures of them and create the eBay listings. And the shoes ended up selling for like $75, $100, sometimes $120. And again, I paid 15 bucks a pair for these shoes. So it's like, okay, this is working. And so as soon as I got the money back from those sales, I would go back to the swap meet the next weekend, buy more shoes. I did this over and over again until the vendor at the swap meet eventually raised his prices up. And then eventually he just disappeared altogether. So I needed to find a new place to get inventory because I knew that I could sell the stuff on eBay. It was just a matter of finding the stuff for a good enough price that I could sell it on eBay for profit. And so I stumbled upon the outlet stores. I started going to Nike factory stores and Nike clearance stores where they had thousands and thousands of pairs of sneakers, brand new in the boxes, and they were all discounted. And if you know what you're looking for, you could pick through a sea of thousands of shoes and find the ones that are profitable or that are being undersold. When you're at a Nike outlet, for example, the shoes are just on a wall and they're just being picked through and sold, but nobody's telling the story of the shoe and what's important about it. What I would do is go into the outlets, find these shoes that were just like sitting on the back wall with a story to tell about the shoe. I would buy the shoe, bring it home, take cool pictures of it, and then describe the shoe. What's important about it? Which athlete wore it? What did that athlete do in the shoe? What are some of the cool technological innovations about the shoe? And so I would create these eBay listings that really would bring new life to dead product, product that was sitting around at the outlet stores, marked down lower and lower and lower. They couldn't get rid of it. And I would come in, scoop it up, tell the story behind it, and then sell it for profit. And back in those days, I used to buy shoes for five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks at the Nike stores. Like you're not gonna be able to go into a Nike store these days and buy a pair of shoes for 4.99 or 9.99. And I used to do it all day long, so much so that the stores used to even call me up and say, hey, you know, we've got hundreds of shoes that we're looking to move. If you're interested in them, you know, come on by. And a lot of times the shoes would be terrible sizes, like really small or giant. I mean, like size, men's 17 or 18 but for five bucks a pair you can't lose and there's big people somewhere in the world that have a hard time finding a size 17 shoe for their foot so it was like a perfect match i would go into the store buy these shoes for five bucks the store was so happy to get rid of them i would bring them home and then sell them worldwide to some big giant halfway around the world who's just thrilled to be able to get their hands on them and I did this for about 10 years, like just mobbing Nike outlets all day long. I'm talking like going to five Nike outlets a day, like going to one, getting all the good shoes, dropping them off somewhere, going to the next one, doing it again. And then at nighttime, taking pictures of the shoes, creating the listings on eBay, doing customer service. But I found my passion. You know, I loved what I was doing. And there was nothing that I would rather do. I mean, my friends would get together and go to bars or, you know, do whatever for fun. And I would rather be hunting for sneakers and selling them for profit. I mean, for me, that was more fun 
than wasting a night at the bars. So I was really fortunate to find my passion at a young age. I started selling shoes when I was 23 and I'm 46 now. So I've been doing it half my life. And I never thought that I would even be able to do it for a year, let alone for 23 years. And, you know, there's a lot of tricks to be able to do what you love and keep on doing it. And part of it is having to constantly reinvent yourself because in 2009, Nike actually banned me from shopping at their stores. <laughs> they sent me cease and desist letters telling me you're no longer welcome to come in here and buy shoes and you can't return them anymore. And you can't even talk to anyone at Nike about it. This is a final decision. And when I got these cease and desist letters from Nike, it was devastating to me because my business was my passion. And all I did was run around to these Nike stores and Nike just told me that I was not welcome in their stores anymore. And so I had to reinvent myself and figure out what I was going to do and how I could keep doing what I love. And I ended up building the world's first sneaker museum. And I did it mainly because Nike banned me and I wanted to show them how much I loved Nikes and who they banned. So secretly I set out to collect and build the world's first sneaker museum. It took me about a year and a half to do it. I opened the collection to the public in 2010. It was featured in the Book of Guinness World Records in 2013 for the world's largest sneaker collection. And I'm known around the world as one of the top sneaker collectors. And I never sought to be a sneaker collector to begin with. You know, I was trying to run my resale business, but I hit a brick wall and was forced to do something different and reinvent myself. And so that's how the Shoeseum came about. And I'm really proud of that pivot that I took because it made a much larger impact on me and on the world than my sneaker resale business ever could have. Even if I was selling 10 times as many sneakers as I was, I don't feel like it would have had the same kind of impact as what the Shoeseum has done for me and for the sneaker culture. So you, you gotta just roll with things, you know, like things come at you and you may not expect it and you have to change it up and do something different. And I think the trick is continuing to do what you love. I, again, found my passion at an early age and I've stuck with it. And I've been really mindful of what I love and what I'm good at. You know, we all love something or most of us do, and we're all good at something better than our neighbors or our friends, or, you know, that that's something that is like unique to each of us. For me, it's being a collector and a historian and loving sneakers. And I've always been a collector my whole life from baseball cards and basketball cards and silly things that I collected along the way. I collected pencils when I was studying to take the bar exam. It motivated me 
to go to the library and study. Every day I would bring a new pencil with me and then throw it in a drawer. And then I would open the drawer and look at all of the pencils that I collected. And it was like, man, I put in work to pass the LSAT and to get into law school. So, you know, I have that collector mentality in me, whether it's collecting valuable things or collecting silly things like pencils to help motivate me to do something that was difficult to do. And I've always been mindful of what it is that I'm good at, what it is that I'm best at, and how I can do something unique and different that other people will appreciate. You know, when I was reselling sneakers, I didn't consider myself a reseller. I considered myself a facilitator. It sounds crazy, but I was facilitating the needs of people all around the world by going into these stores where they couldn't sell the product and I would get it and be the middleman between this dying product and somebody that really, really wanted it. And I love the product so much that it made the difficult parts of work still enjoyable. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, all work is work. And to a certain degree, it's difficult and there are parts of it that suck. But if you love what you do, or if you love the product that you're selling or the service that you're providing, it makes it so that the more difficult parts of the job are still enjoyable to a certain degree. So for me, like when I got cut off from Nike, and I had the idea to open the world's first sneaker museum. That was putting together a lot of personal attributes that I possessed that made it so that I could build something magnificent that I thought the world would appreciate. So like I had this big giant warehouse, it was 9,000 square feet. I had shelves all set up for my sneaker resale business. And I got cut off from Nike and I'm selling my inventory and the shelves are starting to empty out and I'm seeing gaps in the shelves. And I thought I can put it all together. I can put my passion and knowledge of Nikes into this warehouse using these shelves and I can curate the world's first sneaker museum by just like putting together all of the things that I'm good at, like collecting and storytelling I know everything about sneakers, so I knew exactly which ones I would need to have in order to open up a sneaker museum. So I just put all of these things together and did it. And I was very conscious about taking inventory of my resources. And I tell that to people all the time. And it's, you know, when you're trying to figure out what it is that you want to do, if you want to start a business or create a career for yourself, I think you should take a step back and really look hard at yourself and what it is that you love. What are you really good at? What do you enjoy doing? What skills do you possess that make you better than somebody else? You know, I know more about sneakers than most people. There's some people that can make a beautiful quilt better than other people and that love quilting. And maybe that's their passion and there's some unique niche within that, that they can go and soar. But I think it's all about knowing yourself and your strengths and honing in on them and then just doing what you love.
That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that, was, so that was great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean to, you know, just talk on and on and on and on, but, you know, oh, in a yeah, nutshell, it's just about doing what you love and being mindful, conscious about what it is that you're good at and picking to do that. It's like we we're very fortunate to live in a place and a time where we can pick and choose what we do for work. Nobody's going to go up to you and be like, hey, you need to go and run a dry cleaner. Not that there's anything wrong with running a dry cleaner. I'm sure that for some people, that's what they love to do. But nobody's forcing anybody to go and do something that they don't want to do. And if you're going to spend your life working, you might as well try to work in an area that you love and that you're good at. So when you went to law school, did you have intents of being a lawyer or like how, how yes. did, when you started the shoes, like how did that turn into you deciding, okay, this is now a business for myself? When I went to law school, I had intentions of being an attorney, but when I was in law school, I didn't love reading the law. I found it very challenging and difficult. And my friends that started clerking with judges and at law firms didn't seem to love what they were doing. They were having to dress up in suits and ties to go to work and then leave or to go to school and then leave class and then go to the office where they were working. But they didn't seem to love what they were doing. I didn't like the idea of getting dressed up in a suit and tie. That just didn't really appeal to me too much. And also I have an uncle who's a criminal defense attorney and he's very successful. And he lived in San Diego when I was going to law school in San Diego. And I went to work with him a few times just to see what it was all about. And I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't something that I wanted to do. My uncle was a, a, is a criminal defense attorney. So he is basically getting people out of jail or trying to get them not to go to jail to begin with. And he was very emotionless about his job. I mean, he had been doing this for probably 40 years or something. And I remember his client was being hauled off to jail for dealing ecstasy across the country. They were like shipping ecstasy from San Diego to Washington, D.C., and they got popped and the person was going to jail and they were like hysterical in tears as they were being like carted off to spend, I can't remember how many years in prison. And my uncle and I were having dinner that night at a fancy restaurant that he was taking me to. And I was saying to him, do you feel for your client? And like for your client's family who was in the courtroom also crying and my, my uncle could not have cared less I mean he really was like totally emotionless like this was his job he was out there he did what he did in court now he was having a fancy dinner and he was like ready to leave and go on and like do his next case and it just didn't appeal to me at all I mean and there's other areas of law that you could practice not necessarily criminal defense but that was my first taste of actually what it would be like to be a lawyer. And I didn't 
like it at all. And so while I was in law school and I stumbled upon these sneakers and I started selling them and doing my own thing out of my little apartment, it was like my side hustle and I loved it. And my, my friends and classmates thought it was crazy, you know, like we used to have 15 minute breaks in between our classes and I would be shipping shoes at the school's post office, like running over there, like have to ship out my three pairs or however many I sold in between property and contracts or, you know, whatever the, the classes were. So it was definitely not a normal thing to do, but it was my thing and I loved it. And I was really proud of it. And I still am. Do you still deal with that? Like people questioning what it is? No, uh, I've established a lot of credibility in the space now. So people, it's it's like, it's normal now. And it's a lot more mainstream now. There's a lot of people that are buying and reselling sneakers. It's a lot easier to do in some ways. And it's more difficult to do successfully and make a lot of money right now because there's so many people that are all over it. Uh, but back when I was doing it, there were not a lot of people that were doing it. And that's one of the things that made it so successful. Like, you know, when you're finding that little niche to explore and pursue, it's good to do it in a space where there's a lot of interest and people will enjoy what it is that you're offering, but it's not too crowded where there's, you know, so much competition. And, you know, I wouldn't recommend trying to create a new kind of toothpaste. You'd have a hard time competing with Crest and Colgate and Aquafresh and whatever, you know, it's like you want to find something different and unique, but that appeals to a lot of people with the shoes when I was buying and reselling them. So like I'd go to a, a Nike store and there'd be a pair of shoes that's like $120 and they were selling it to me for 10 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever and so there was a big range between what i was paying for it and what the msrp was and so you could come somewhere in the middle and sell a pair of shoes for 75 bucks that maybe was 120 bucks or something and the person who buys it is stoked because they're getting a great deal and there's a margin there to make enough money and uh, that it's worth doing and so you can just like keep doing it over and over and over again yeah. So, so you mentioned a couple of times how important the passion is and how lucky you were to kind of discover that passion at a young age. So how do you recommend someone go about either discovering that passion or if they have that passion, finding a way to turn that into a side hustle or a business or what they're kind of devoting their time to? So let me kind of turn it around and ask you, what is it that you're passionate about? Um. I'm I'm passionate about uh, baseball. About playing baseball? No, more like the stat stuff behind baseball. And so ultimately, would you want to do something having to do with stats and baseball as a career? Yeah, definitely. Do you like public speaking? Yeah, yeah. So would you want to be a broadcaster? or a, a commentator or somebody behind the scenes uh, coming up with data to feed to those people? Yeah, probably more the, the second part about coming up with the stats or data to give to the broadcasters or the teams or whoever else. I have a cousin who's named Josh Bogorod. I'm very proud of him. 
He's really <laughs> passionate about hockey. Mm-hmm. He loves hockey. Like ever since he was like a little kid, he loved hockey. And we grew up in Los Angeles. And so the home team was the LA Kings. And my cousin Josh, when he was 12 or 13 years old, used to call in to the LA Kings pregame radio show. They had like a radio show. They were talking about, oh, the Kings are playing the Oilers tonight and so-and-so is playing and this goalie, da-da-da-da-da, and you know, this win streak and that, da-da-da-da. And my cousin, who just loves hockey and stats and the Kings, would call in to the AM radio show, like every game. And he eventually actually became a regular on the program where instead of him calling them, they would call him. And they nicknamed him Puck Ass. Uh, (laughs) It was funny because at the time he was like a 12 or 13 year old kid and they didn't know, the the radio show didn't know that he was a kid. He was just this really enthusiastic, passionate hockey fan. And he ended up going off to the minor leagues and being a broadcaster. He went to Alaska, he's been all over the place, but now he broadcasts for the Dallas Stars. And that is one of the most coveted positions that you can get because the people that are broadcasters for professional sports teams, that's a life job unless they really mess up and say something terrible on the air or if there's some scandal or something like that. But if you think about it, in Major League Baseball, how many teams are there? About 30? 30, yeah. So, you know, there's 30 teams and each team has one main announcer and then the the color person who's also like commenting back and forth. So there's two people for each of these teams. So there's really only 60 people in the United States of America that are fortunate enough to have those jobs. And those are dream jobs. And that's the same thing for my cousin with the Dallas Stars. And he's so good. Like when you listen to him calling a game, I close my eyes and I can't even believe that it's my little cousin. You know, he's not so little anymore, but it's like, man, he really turns it on and is so passionate and charismatic and so good at what he does and he's completely self-made you know just from this little kid that loved hockey and stats and the home team calling into the radio show and just sharing his flair and the radio show saw talent in him so they kept him going and then he eventually worked his way up to where he's at now and so you know If there's a baseball team close to you that you're a fan of, that's a great place to start because you probably know more about the team and the players than most people. And your passion will come through when you talk about it. And I love numbers. I've always been a numbers person. And so if stats is your thing, and if you feel that same way too, you can always do things with numbers and play with them to present material in a unique way. You know, if this is something that you love and are passionate about, you can crunch numbers of your favorite players and probably reveal 
data that is there, but you kind of have to get under the surface to get to it. So, you know, I, I would do that and use social media mm -hmm. to share it. Uh, we, we live in an amazing time now where there's no barriers to entry to anything. You, you know, if you are good at something and you have a phone, you can share it with your friends and your family. And if what you're doing is unique and your passion carries through, people will see it and they'll cling on to it and they'll want more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, how important do you think that kind of unique aspect of the reselling um, do you think was to, to build that business and the shoesium and everything that came along with it? I always had an eye out for opportunities. I'm a very opportunistic person. And sometimes the word opportunistic has a negative connotation. I don't think it does at all. I look at situations and try to see where there's a hole to fill or a gap that needs to, to be met or a, a service that needs to be provided. And so here's what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm sort of talking around something, but more specifically. So in the early 2000s, there were these shoes called Nike Air Rifts. And they have a separate big toe from the rest of the shoe. So when you look at the front of the shoe, the big toe is separate and the other toes go together. And this was before like the keen shoes that have like the separate mm -hmm. toe digits or whatever. It was a very unique shoe. And you would look at it and say, wow, that's really weird. I wonder who would wear that. Well, at the time, they had a real cult following in the UK. But in the US, they couldn't give these shoes away. Like they would be at the outlet for like $39.99. They go $29.99, $19.99, $14.99. You know what? Just here, take them. Take these air rifts. Like we can't sell them. The air rifts also came with these socks that had a separate big toe for your like your big toe would be separate. And they kind of looked like little cooking gloves, but for your feet. Well, the only way to get these socks was to buy a pair of air rifts that came with one pair of socks. You couldn't buy like a six pack of these Nike split toe socks. Well, the socks were selling in the UK for like 20 or $30 a pair. And I was buying the shoes with the socks for about 10 or $15 a pair. And then the shoes were selling for about $100 a pair. So I'd go into the Nike store, buy a hundred pairs of these shoes that they couldn't give away. I'd separate out the socks, sell the socks separately, then sell the shoes. And I was making a killing doing it. And at the time, it's like, I, I found this niche. I found this gap to fill. They had at the time, 80 different Nike factory stores all across the country. And a lot of them had these air rifts that they couldn't give away. And I found this like tunnel to the UK where I could sell them, sell the socks for more than the shoes and then sell the shoes for five times what I was paying for them. And so I used to call around to all the Nike outlets and get them to ship me all their air rifts. And so then I had this business where I'm like sitting at home receiving air rifts from all over the country and then selling them 
to the UK at a huge profit. And so like along the way, and I sort of got sidetracked and I don't know if this like really answers your question, but it's like along the way, I've been looking for opportunities. You know, when I was buying and reselling shoes, it wasn't such a focus on the air rift. But then when I stumbled upon that opportunity, it was like, okay, I'm going for this. And I'm gonna get every damn air rift that I can and, and sell them all. And I did the same thing with these soccer cleats that came out a couple years later. They, they were called Mercurial Vapors. I remember this guy who worked at the Nike outlet pulled me aside. He's like, Jordan, check this out. And he showed me these mercurial vapor shoes. He said, you see these shoes? He goes, these are like Air Jordans, but soccer shoes. And I was like, okay, dude, if you say so. And I started buying these shoes for like 60 bucks and then selling them for 150 bucks all around the world. And I took a shift where like I was then focused on soccer shoes. So it was like, okay, just generally selling shoes from the swap meet. And then it was like, oh, wow, there's this Air Rift opportunity. Oh, wow, there's this soccer cleat opportunity the next opportunity and then it's like oh shit they banned me what do i do now okay boom i'm going to build the world's first sneaker museum and so it's like just kind of always having your eyes wide open for where the opportunities are yeah definitely that makes sense i'm friends with darren rovell uh sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no no, no you're fine what were you gonna do, say do you know who darren rovell is I don't uh, think. He, he's a sports business it's hard to even describe him uh because he's so successful and has done so many things uh but he started off he had a passion for sports a passion for business he knew he wasn't a good enough athlete to be a professional athlete but he thought you know what i want to combine my love of sports and my love of business and do something in this field and he ended up becoming the world's first sports business reporter. He worked at ESPN for many years. He went to ABC and NBC. Now he works for a, a gambling company called the Action Network. He's got 2 million followers on Twitter. Uh, I mean, tons of followers on all different social media. He just has a really unique voice. And he saw an opportunity to talk about the business of sports. And he was doing this 20 years ago when nobody else was. And now we've come a lot, a long way. Like the road is paved for you. I'm talking more about your passion about baseball. Yeah. It's just a matter of finding your unique voice that adds value for other people that will want to tune into you and can't wait to tune into you next to hear what it is that you'll have to say. So, you know, so how can you take your love and your passion and these numbers and mm -hmm. spin it into something where people are like, wow, I never thought of that. Yeah. Wow. That's a great What's he going to say next? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Did you have a yeah. question or no? No. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just going to ask, you keep talking about pivoting and seeing the opportunity in the moment when you have to pivot, like, for example, when Nike banned you, right away is your mindset and mentality like, oh, like, this is just another opportunity? Or does it take some time of reflecting and whatever? Like, what does that look like for you? When I was banned from Nike, it didn't happen immediately. It was, it was really devastating for me. And 
I stumbled upon something called The Last Lecture, which I just can't recommend enough. Uh, I can't remember, Marley, if I told you about it previously, um, but- It's familiar, but I don't know if it was you that told me about it or not, maybe. So there was a man named Randy Pausch, who was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, and he was in his 40s, and he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and he was told that he was going to die, and that he was probably going to die in three to six months. And at the time when he got this news, it was absolutely devastating, of course. He was married to the girl of his dreams, and he had three young kids and he found out that he was going to die and that there was nothing that he was gonna be able to do to make him not die. That pancreatic cancer is one of the worst kinds of cancer and that when you get it like he had it, it, it was inevitable that he was gonna die. And he decided that he was gonna spend the rest of his life fulfilling his childhood dreams. He made a list of what his dreams were when he was a little kid. And one of the dreams was to win stuffed animals at the carnival, like to have, you know, when you go to like a carnival or something, they have those big giant stuffed animals that are like bigger than people. His dream when he was a six-year-old kid or whatever was to win those big stuffed animals. That was one of his dreams. Uh, but he had six dreams. And so he made a list of what his six dreams were. And he spent the rest of his life fulfilling those dreams. And he wrote a book about it called The Last Lecture. And he gave a presentation called The Last Lecture, which is on YouTube. It's been viewed by millions and millions of people. I think 20 million or more people. But it's very inspiring, to say the least. I mean, here's a man who's confronted with his own death. And he's choosing to spend the rest of his life fulfilling his childhood dreams and also having fun every single day. And I read this book and I watched the YouTube video and it really hit me and it really shook me up. And it was like, okay, what am I so upset about for being banned by Nike? Here's this guy who's dying and he's deciding that he's gonna spend the rest of his life fulfilling his dreams and having fun. If he can do that, I can do that. I don't need to be dying to fulfill my own childhood dreams. And so I started thinking about what my childhood dreams were. And the first one was to own all the Air Jordans. I mean, that's really what I wanted when I was a kid was I wanted all the Air Jordans. My parents wouldn't buy me even one. And not only the Air Jordans, but I wanted Charles Barkley's shoes and David Robinson's and Andre Agassi's and you name it, all the star athletes in their shoes, I wanted all of them. And so when Nike sent me those cease and desist letters and they banned me from shopping in their stores and I watched the last lecture and reminded myself of what my childhood dreams were, which was to own every cool shoe, I decided that Nike banned me and they could stop me from shopping at their stores, but they couldn't shop, stop me from shopping everywhere else. And so I decided that I was going to sell off all my inventory that I had worked 10 years to buy and accumulate. And as I sold it off, I would use the money to strategically 
build the world's first sneaker museum and the most comprehensive collection of Nikes in the world. And I would get to have every shoe that I ever wanted when I was a kid. And so that was really what inspired me to, to do it was soul searching what my childhood dreams were and, and making them happen. Another one of my childhood dreams was to be famous. It sounds crazy, but I always wanted to be famous. When I was a little kid, my mom would say, you know, what do you want to be when you're older? I'd say, I want to be famous, but I didn't know what the hell I would do. And I wasn't, I didn't excel in anything that would make me, make you look at me and be like, oh, he's going to be famous for, you know, whatever. Cause I, I wasn't great at anything, <laughs> but I'm great at collecting and I'm, great at storytelling and I love Nikes. I'm very passionate about them. And I was able to put all of those things together and fulfill my childhood dreams by having all the shoes, getting in the Guinness Book of World Records and being famous around the world for what I love and what I'm passionate about. So- awesome. oh, oh, sorry, were you so- so I was going to say, you know, you should watch the last lecture. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> the book is even better, but as far as getting a lot of bang for your buck, you can watch the, the video on YouTube and it's only an hour and 15 minutes, whereas the book takes a little more time to read and get through. But I highly recommend the book. I, I really recommend the video too. I became very obsessed with Randy Pausch because he came into my life at a time where I was really struggling and I found his story very inspiring. There are also follow-up interviews with him. He did a series of interviews with Diane Sawyer and his wife was in those interviews and it's it's a very sad story because ultimately he did end up dying and leaving his wife with their three young kids but there's a lot of amazing takeaways from the last lecture and from the follow-up interviews that he did. So I'd really recommend it. And then, you know, soul search for yourself of like, what are your childhood dreams? What, what do you love? You know, what makes you better at something than other people? One of the things in the last lecture that I love is Randy Pausch takes a crayon and he smells it. And he says that the smell of the crayon reminds him of his childhood. And it really does, because when you smell a crayon, it's like one of those things that like you just can't forget what that what that is like. And he actually would carry a, a crayon in his shirt pocket to just remind him of of his childhood and 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 fulfilling his childhood dreams. I'll so, watch that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you should, you know, and when you're confronted with a roadblock or an obstacle, it doesn't happen immediately that you'll see it as like, oh, there's an opportunity here. I'm going to build a museum or, you know, whatever. It, it hits you and it takes some thinking and processing. And then eventually you get to a place where you might spot an opportunity. Mm -hmm. One of the big takeaways from the last lecture is that the brick walls that we all confront are there to stop other people 
But Randy Pausch is like, not me. I'm going to get around the brick wall. I'm going to get over it or under it, or I'm going to tear through it. And so, you know, those brick walls happen and they stop you dead in your tracks. And sometimes they're crushing, but sometimes there's an even better opportunity that comes from it than if it never happened to you to begin with. Because like I said, if I was selling shoes and even if I sold 10 times as many shoes as I did, nobody would care except that I would just have more money from selling more shoes. But the Shoeseum had a worldwide impact, much more so than if even I was the biggest shoe seller in all of the land, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's cool to look back and say, okay, you know, this bad thing happened, but I rolled with it and made something better happen. I think I remember you mentioning this from the last time we talked, but I'm not sure. Um, have you always been working alone or have you had other people helping you at all? I, I don't know if the story was that some problem happened when you hired someone or something like that. Yes. I so I started working alone and eventually I had too much work to do all by myself. So the first thing I did was train somebody to help me wrap and ship packages because anybody can wrap and ship boxes once you teach them how to do it. And slowly but surely, I started training other people to help me out. And at one point, I had a staff of five full-time employees, but I've gone up and down depending on the needs of my business. Right now, I work for myself. But when we spoke the last time, I had mentioned to you that I was working with a couple of photographers that were shooting some product for me, and I was robbed. Uh, not long before we had talked and I was cautioning you about being really careful who you work with, who you share confidential information with. You know, I had a lot of very valuable product that was sitting in a place that it really wasn't safe looking back. I didn't have an alarm. I didn't have security cameras. I was much too trusting of the few people that I led into my office and that I worked closely with. And ultimately, as I became more and more successful, these people started treating me differently. And I started feeling it. And, and my, my gut was like telling me, you know, this is not good. Like these, the way these people are talking and treating me is not right. But I kept doing it and joking along with them and, and, the writing was on the wall that these people didn't like me and that they were plotting to do something. And eventually in the middle of the night, my office was broken into and burglarized. And I regret that I worked with people that made me feel a certain way and that I continued to work with them when the warning signs were there. And so you know, I would say when you pick and choose who you work with, be very careful. And if people make you feel a certain way, like if you accomplish something great and there's somebody that you're like, ooh, I don't really want to tell them because maybe they're like not happy for me or they would twist it or that feeling that you have is valid and real. And, you know, I ignored a lot of 
the signs that were there and put myself in a bad situation. But I learned from it and it's okay. You know, it was just product. I was fortunate that that's all that was taken from me. But when you're in business for yourself, the highs are high and the lows are low. They really are. And there's nothing guaranteed. You know, I, I don't collect a regular paycheck. So that's very stressful. When there's a big sale, that's amazing. But life is very expensive, especially when you have a family to support. And it's not easy. In a lot of ways, going and getting a traditional job is a lot easier and safer than the entrepreneurial route where you don't know where your next paycheck is gonna come from and you're constantly trying to spot opportunities and worried about where the next paycheck is gonna come from versus you know going in, doing your job, getting your check every two weeks, knowing that you're gonna get a check in another two weeks. It's, it's a totally different mentality. But it's just, you know, things to consider. So what advice would you have for people who, I guess, kind of feel those two different sides of it, of the, you know, the riskier passion that they have that they want to go for, or the, you know, the safer job with the more stable paycheck? Um, like, I think a lot of people either have that debate within themselves or with their parents or just with this, you know, societal pressure. Uh, so what advice would you have with that type of dilemma? Well, you need money to pay your bills and to do more than get by. You know, nobody wants to just get by. We want to live comfortably. And so I would say that it's a good idea to go the safe route where you have a traditional normal job that pays you every couple of weeks. And then on the side, try to build something around what you're passionate about. And hopefully that will grow and flourish into something incredible and lucrative. And then you could start doing more of that and less of the other, and then eventually all of that and not the other. I have a friend named Christopher Huff who worked at Nike for many years. He worked in Nike ID, which is the division where you can like go up and customize your own pair of shoes. And he left Nike and ended up going and working at Ironman uh, because he's a runner and an athlete. But while he was working at Nike and while he was working at Ironman, he had this idea to start making custom bracelets uh, in Kenya. Kenyans are the fastest runners in the world typically. And because my friend is into running, he sort of naturally gravitated towards Kenya and Kenyans. And they have these little beaded bracelets that are made in Kenya. And so my friend created this company called Artikin, art and Ken for Kenya, art as in like the bracelets are art. And so he created this company 
on the side when he had his traditional nine to five at Nike and at Iron Man, where he was like collecting a check. So he wasn't living out of his car struggling. And he built this business where you could go on articin.com and buy one of these bracelets or customize a bracelet, you know, taking his custom experience from working at Nike ID and sort of doing something with that himself. And his business is very successful. The bracelets are super cool. The cost to have stuff made in Kenya is dirt cheap compared to if the stuff was being manufactured in the United States. And so, you know, here's another story, uh, a success story of an entrepreneur who was able to hone in on what he's good at and what his experiences have been like with his past at Nike and his love of running in Kenya and customs and boom, you put it all together and he sells these bracelets for like 30, 40 bucks each online. And I don't know what he pays for them to be made, but I'm guessing it's next to nothing. And, you know, uh, he eventually left Iron Man and pursued only Articon. And now he's the CEO of Articon and that's his thing. But it took him not quite 10 years, but more than five years of doing the corporate nine to five, collecting a check and then doing this side hustle to where eventually he could leave the corporations and just do his side hustle. So, you know, it's possible to do both and it's safe to do both instead of just like, oh, here's my passion. I'm going all out and doing this. And, and then, you know, if it doesn't work right away, then what? So did you ever have a corporate job as well? Or did this just start right after law school? Yeah, I started selling shoes when I was in law school. I stuck with it through business school. I also got my MBA and I stuck with selling shoes until Nike banned me. And then I built the shoeseum and for a very short stint, I was hired by Zappos, which is an online shoe selling company. And I went out to Las Vegas, but I wasn't an employee. I was a contractor, like a consultant and it didn't work out. They fired me after four months and I didn't see it coming at all. It was like, they called me in and were like, okay, you're done. Give us your badge and all your things. I was like, uh, wait a minute. And what? that was that. That was really my only experience with a corporation. But so what did your day-to-day -day look like when you were doing the shoe selling full-time and what does your day-to-day -day look like now that you're um, you know, doing other stuff? So when I was selling shoes full-time, my days consisted of me buying shoes. That was what I really loved doing was just buying shoes. Like if I could have it my way, I'd spend my whole day just buying shoes. And so that's the job that I created for myself. When I had five full-time employees, there was somebody that would inspect the shoes that I bought to make sure that they were good enough to sell, you know, cause I was in the stores buying shoes a hundred or 200 pairs at a time. And I didn't really have an opportunity to make sure like left and right size nine and nine, there's not a smudge on this or whatever. So we had a job of somebody that was 
inbounding the shoes, just receiving the ones that I dropped off and cleaning them up and making sure that they were good enough to sell. And then there was a photographer. And then there was somebody that would create the eBay listings. And then there was somebody that wrapped and shipped the packages. And then we had somebody that was just like running around managing the office, helping out with just other random things. And I spent my days on the road buying shoes, which was a dream job for me. Actually, the best part of building that business was when I had my staff trained, my staff trained to be able to do everything except buy the shoes. So all I had to do was buy the shoes. It's like, okay, later guys, you ship out all the orders. I'll be back with more shoes. Hey guys, here I am. Here's more shoes. You know? So that's what my day-to-day -day used to look like. Now my day-to-day -day is more of juggling, trying to spot business opportunities, being a dad with my two kids. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm married. So I'm a family guy, but I don't have a normal traditional job. And it's scary. I mean, it's really scary because life is so expensive. My daughter's school tuition is so expensive. Going to the grocery store is so expensive. And I don't have the resale business that I once had. So it's tough. I've had a lot of success selling very expensive shoes in recent years. I was working with Sotheby's, the auction house for a few years. Uh, in 2019, I broke the Guinness world record with the most expensive pair of shoes ever sold. I sold a pair of Nike moon shoes at Sotheby's for $437,500. And in 2020, I broke my own record and sold a pair of game worn Air Jordan ones for $560,000. So during a 10 month span about three years ago, I sold just shy of a million dollars worth of shoes and it was only two pairs. I mean, two pairs of shoes sold for $997,500. I wish I had more shoes like that. <laughs> I, you can't imagine how much time I spend looking for the next half a million dollar pair of shoes and they're not easy to find. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome though, that you were able to kind of curate exactly what you were looking for when you were doing the, the reselling, that you had a very specific niche about the business that you were in charge of and then everything else was kind of automated to some extent. Yes. There's an amazing book called the E-Myth. I highly recommend that one too. E stands for entrepreneur. I'm looking at my bookshelf because I probably have... By the way, this is the last lecture. Okay. And then this is the E-Myth. Okay. This is a fabulous book. So E stands for entrepreneur. Okay. And so it's the entrepreneur myth. And it basically says that there's this myth that in order to have a wildly successful business, you need this gung-ho entrepreneur, this Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or like this, you know, forward thinking person that just is like a Bill Gates or whatever. The book says, no, no, that's not correct. That's a myth. You need more than just an entrepreneur. What you need are systems and processes that create the same consistent 
experience for the customer without it relying on just the entrepreneur. So a good example is fast food restaurants. If you go into In-N-Out and get a cheeseburger, or if you go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac, it's the same Big Mac, whether you go to this McDonald's or that McDonald's or this one or that one. That's not to say that it's a great meal or anything like that, but it's a consistent product. And that consistent product doesn't necessarily happen because there's this incredible entrepreneur. Although Ray Kroc was an incredible entrepreneur and he was the pioneer of McDonald's. But what you're getting when you go to McDonald's is the result of systems and processes that create the same consistent experience for the customer. And so when I had my sneaker business and I was running around buying shoes, I created systems and processes that made a good experience for the customer in the end. And what that looked like in play was, okay, I'm running around buying a hundred pairs of shoes, 200 pairs of shoes, whatever. I drop them off at the warehouse. Hey guys, here's 200 shoes. And then Tony would come in and he would look through the 200 shoes and pick out three of them that sucked, that couldn't sell because this one's two lefts and this one's a 10 left and an 11 right. And this one's just yellowing and dirty. So we'd take those three shoes and put them off in a pile and I would try to bring them back to the Nike and get my money back. And if that didn't work, then I'd sell them at the swap meet or something like that. But that first step in the process, we called it Qualcomm, quality control. Tony would come in, look at the 200 shoes, make sure that they were worthy of selling because I would rather find two left shoes at the front of the process than have Joe Schmo in Montana get shipped two left shoes and be like, WTF, dude, you just sent me two left shoes, you know? So like, boom, right there in that first step, we catch the bad shoes. And then there was a photographer and the photographer would come in and I had very specific pictures that I wanted taken of my shoes from this angle with the camera here, with the centered, you know, with equal spacing on this side and that side. It probably sound nuts when I'm describing this, but this is the process that I had very straightforward and there was no room for deviation and so a pair of shoes would come through the photo area it would get shot six times from this angle that angle the other angle whatever and then Tanya would come in and she was the person in charge of creating the eBay listing and so she would look at these six pictures and maybe one of them was bad or not centered or whatever. So she would take the shoe back to the photographer and be like, oh, hey, Dave, by the way, you missed a shot or this shot could be done better. So I had built-in quality controls throughout this process to where the bad shoes got pulled out. As the shoes were photographed, if a shoe wasn't photographed properly, it wasn't turned into a listing because the lister knew what to look for and would say, hey, hey, wait a minute, we messed up on this picture, redo it. And then once the thing is listed, boom, it then sells. We pull the shoe. We had another person come over to double check and make sure that the shoe that was pulled actually matches the shoe that sold. And then we do a final check to make sure that while the shoe was sitting in the warehouse, it didn't get yellow or dirtied or like something bad happened to it. So we do an additional round of quality control at the end. I used to give my employees $2 bills when they found bad shoes. 
So it would incentivize them to like really look. And then at the end of the week, I'd be like, boom, here's your, you know, $2 bills. And it's not a lot of money, but $2 bills are fun. You know, they're more fun than two $1 bills. And it was something that my staff looked forward to. And it was a built-in bottleneck in the process to catch the bad shoes. Because again, I don't want Joe Schmo in Montana to end up with a bad pair of shoes. And so my ability to be out on the road just buying shoes was this. It was the e-myth. I was the entrepreneur, but it didn't need me. The business needed systems and processes so that the product could flow through so that the end result was successful every time. And so it takes creating those steps in the flow of things to make it to where my job was just buying shoes. I actually, the EMIT talk, talks about McDonald's. So like when I was bringing up the Big Mac, that wasn't just my own example. It was one that's actually used in here, but I love In-N-Out. I'm from California and In-N-Out is like the fast food restaurant that's everywhere there. And as I was reading the E-Myth for the first time 15 years ago or whenever it was, I was at In-N-Out watching them make French fries. And there were four or five people making the French fries and they looked like they were in high school or something like that. And they were just screwing around with each other, like joking, talking about the weekend. And I was watching the process of what they were doing. And In-N-Out starts with a potato. You can actually see the potato. They take it, put it in this thing and like press it down. And then it comes out in like little French fry shaped wedges. They take it, they fry it. They put a little timer and it's like, ding. Well, it doesn't ding, but it you know tells them when it's ready to come out of the fryer. And then they drain the oil, put it in this little area, put salt on it and then serve it. And I was watching them do this over and over and over again. And there's tons of people waiting in line for these French fries. And the French fries are like two bucks or more, but a potato's 10 cents. And it's like, wow, you're watching these high school kids just joking around with each other, talking about the weekend. And they're just like making money, like boom, over and over and over, just like adding value to potatoes, doing it with this process where there's no room for error and everybody that ends up with the French fries is stoked. And so it was like right there in front of me, I was able to watch in and out add value to a potato. And I thought my shoes were that potato. And I had this similar process that took the potato, the shoe through and turned it into money. So, you know, it was very much inspired. My process was inspired by the e-myth and by French fries at in and out That's an awesome analogy, yeah. He really likes In-N-Out yeah. too, so it's all good money. I told uh, one of the people that works at In-N-Out that's like a higher up there about how the French fry line inspired me. And he actually sent me all these In-N-Out shoes, which I happen to have under my oh, desk. Wow. So here's these ones. And then here's another one. Oh, nice box too. Yeah, that's cool. that's very these ones look like the milkshake. Yeah. And then I have one more.
in black. Nice. And you, you said I'll show you uh, some of the Nikes that I brought over yeah. here. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> this shoe right here is really cool. And it's an example of shoes that I sold way back in the day and would have made good money on because a shoe like this would sit at the outlet and nobody cared about it. Nobody knew what it was. It's not like hyped up or anything, but it's got an amazing story. So this shoe is called a Mayfly and it's very, very lightweight. It's actually only made to run a hundred kilometers. You can see that back there, which is about 60 miles. And then the shoe is supposed to fall apart. It's just as minimalistic of a shoe as possible. The co-founder of Nike, Bill Bowerman, used to try to make shoes as lightweight as possible because he had this philosophy that the more weight that a runner had to carry on their feet, the slower they would go because they had to carry that weight the distance of a race. He calculated that for every ounce on a pair of shoes, a runner has to carry 55 pounds during the course of a mile. He figured that out by calculating how many steps it takes to run a mile and adding an ounce for each step. So this shoe right here is an example of as light as possible. Now it's called a mayfly because in nature, there's an animal called a mayfly, well, an insect. Can you see this right here? Yes. So let me read you what the bag says. Mayfly, the ultimate lightweight racing shoe would support and cushion you one meter past the finish line before wearing away. We know that for every extra 100 grams you carry on your feet, you use approximately 1% more energy to perform at the same level. The Mayfly is stripped down for performance enhancement and is engineered to last for 100 kilometers of running and racing. Now listen to this. In nature, the Mayfly is an insect that lives, breeds, and dies all in one day. Carp diem. So that's why they named it the Mayfly. So you get this shoe at an outlet that nobody cares about, and you tell this amazing story about the co-founder of Nike and trying to make it as lightweight as possible. And it's called the Mayfly because this insect only lives for one day and blah, blah, blah. And boom, all of a sudden, people want the shoe. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. But at the outlet, nobody wants it because nobody knows that. So that's what I would do is run around to the outlet stores looking for all these little stories and these little gems that that were just kind of untold it's but then i could that, oh so i was just gonna say it's funny that nike banned you because right. in a way they kind of needed you to tell their stories yes they didn't like that i Words disrupted issues, yeah yeah I, I was a disruptor because they would send shoes to an outlet hoping that customers that live in that neighborhood could come in and buy the shoes but i would go in and buy all of them and mm -hmm. so they didn't like that. But <laughs> Nike does such an amazing job with their storytelling. I'll show you another pair of really cool shoes. So these are Air Jordan 1s, and they're called Lost and Found. So if you notice, the box top is orange, but the bottom is black, and it's supposed to be like mismatched. And Nike came up with this story as if these shoes were lost in 1986 and recently found. 
So this is a fake receipt that looks like it was written in 1986 and the shoes were paid for with cash. And then they're the Chicago Air Jordan 1s, which are probably the most iconic sneaker of all time. But when you look closely at the shoe, you can see that they're kind of weathered away. They look sort of aged. The leather is kind of cracking. The outsoles are a little white because they wanted these shoes to look old and vintage. So even though this is a brand new pair of shoes, it's made to look old and they were dubbed the lost and found shoes. So, you know, Nike does a great job with their marketing and their storytelling. And a shoe like this will come out and will sell out right away. It would never end up at the outlet. So it's not like you walk in and be like, oh, look at this. The lost and found Air Jordan ones. Let me tell this story on the internet. Like that's not going to happen with a hyped up shoe like this that everybody's like all over as soon as it comes out. But it's still cool that they just like come up with these cool stories to make the shoes more desirable. Yeah. Recently, I had the opportunity of working on the movie Air. You know, uh, the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon movie about Nike. Yeah. They hired me and rented shoes for me that were in the movie. So wow. I have two pairs of those right here. These are Oregon waffles. You can see they have waffles. Yeah. I'm not too good with the zoom camera. I have to like no, be okay. better about going backwards. But anyway, um, this is a old vintage pair of running shoes. And then over here is a vintage pair of Nike Blazers basketball shoes. And both of these shoes were in the movie air. This one was in Ben Affleck's office who was playing film night. But that was a really very cool experience i got to go on the set and meet the actors and hang out and they rented my shoes for six weeks but there were some of them that were so special that i wasn't comfortable just leaving them behind so that's what got me to get to go to the set i was like okay you can have these amazing shoes but i need to be there to, to babysit them and they were so like okay cool did they come to you or was that an opportunity that you sought after no, they found me. Wow. Uh, the set director was looking for shoes from before 1984 because the movie was set in 1984. And so I just gathered up a bunch of my stuff, went to LA. I was there for five days and it was cool. And then afterwards, when the movie came out, I auctioned off a lot of the shoes that were in the movie. And that was cool too, because people were just so stoked at the opportunity to get to own one of the props from the movie. And I was happy to sell them. I wanted to sell them anyways. And then the shoes getting to be in the movie made them much more desirable to other people. Yeah, that, you know, that's definitely savvy too. There's a lot of like, the opportunity seeking that you were talking about there. Yeah, and timing is everything. I can't say enough about timing. You hear a lot, people will say, oh, timing is everything. Well. It is. The reason why my moon shoe sold at Sotheby's for $437,500 is because the auction ended during the 50th anniversary of man walking on the moon. Remember in 2019, it was like, oh, 
man walked on the moon 50 years ago and like every company had there were oreos that looked like the moon and everything was like moon themed and moonwalking theme and the stamps had neil armstrong and buzz aldrin on the moon so it was like the perfect time to be able to sell a nike moon shoe when everyone was excited about the moon and then 10 months later when i sold the air jordan one and and broke my record that was when the last dance was on espn during the pandemic and everyone was just all about michael jordan it was michael jordan mania so it was the right opportunity to sell those shoes and then the movie shoes the movie came out on april 5th and so my auction started on april 5th because everyone was so excited to go to the movies it's like oh wow not only can you go to the movies but you can have an opportunity to buy the shoes that are in the movies and so that's when the hype was at its peak and so you want to always try to be able to spot those trends when something's going to be hot and try to prepare yourself the best that you can to surf the wave you know i i say a lot it's really difficult to create a wave and surf on it it's a lot easier to surf on a wave that's already created so if you can spot a wave and ride it that's a lot easier than trying to like create a wave and then ride it and then create a wave again and then ride it and then like build more hype it's like okay, the world's talking about Michael Jordan. Everyone wants Michael Jordan stuff. Okay, boom, here's the Air Jordan 1. Let's sell it. Let's ride this wave, you know, instead of the alternative, which is like trying to artificially create hype. Yeah. So what's next for you? What what wave are you looking at now or if you don't know? That's a good question. It's a good question. And I don't know. And I'm always looking. And like I said, it's stressful. It's, it's really stressful because... There's, there's nothing's guaranteed and nobody owes anyone anything. And all of my accomplishments at this point don't mean shit, you know? So I sold these two great shoes in 2019 and 2020. Well, it doesn't mean anything. Like it meant something back then and it was great, but it's not sustainable, you know? So it's like, I'm always trying to spot the next thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You wouldn't believe how much time I spend on the computer just like looking for shit. (laughs) I don't even know what I'm looking for, but I'm just (laughs) looking for stuff. Just reading a lot of like news articles and stuff, or what is it? No, mainly on eBay. I'm just like scouring eBay, looking up like Nike 70s, Nike 1970s, Nike 80s, Nike 1980s, Nike. Prefontaine, Bill Knight, Bill Bowerman, Michael Jordan. I'm just like typing in all these keywords constantly trying to find the next big thing. And I know they're out there. I mean, it's a big world full of tons of cool stuff. It's just, you know, it's a, a scavenger hunt or an Easter egg hunt. Um, I guess the last thing we could ask is how would you define success? That's a great question. I grew up in Beverly Hills and I went to Beverly Hills High School and my zip code growing up was 90210. And that was when Beverly Hills 90210 was a television show. 
And I always grew up thinking that money meant success. And I still feel that way. I want my family to have a certain quality of life. I want my kids to have a nice backyard to play in and enjoy. I enjoy nice things. I want my wife to have nice things. So a lot of what I equate success with has to do with money. And that's a product of how I was raised. But another part of success is being happy and loving what you do and enjoying your life and just waking up looking forward to the day. Today, I won't make any money. I'm not buying and selling anything, but that's okay. I woke up this morning, I went for a great run. I loved it. I ran all around Nike campus and through the little woods. I saw three deer while I was on my run. I thought that was neat. I was looking forward to this and getting to talk to you guys. And I'll go home and be with my kids and we'll pick strawberries in the backyard and make dinner together. And that's success. I mean, there's a level of success because I'm happily married and I have two wonderful kids that I'm proud of and I get to spend the afternoon with them. In between my run and us doing this podcast, I took my son swimming at the gym and I'm lucky to get to do those sorts of things. You know, a lot of people that have a traditional job are stuck in the office and can't just go and take their three-year-old swimming in the middle of a Thursday, you know? I don't have to ask anyone permission to do things. That's one of my favorite things about being my own boss. If I need to take my wife to an appointment or if I wanna go and go to lunch with a friend or whatever, I don't have to ask for time off. I don't, I don't need to run it by anyone. And that is something that I'm very proud of. And there's, I don't know. I mean, there's a level of success that goes along with that, getting able, having freedom and autonomy to do what you want. But again, it's, it's stressful. You know, I mean, I'm just being real with you guys because I don't have a consistent paycheck. I don't know where my next paycheck is going to come. Sometimes in the pipeline, I'll have projects laid out where it's like, okay, I'm working on this collection. And then after that, the movie is going to come out. And then after the movie comes out, the movie auctions will happen. And then after that, I don't know, you know, and so I'm always networking with people and just reaching out to other people that I know that have a lot of shoes and maybe may need my help selling them or, you know, I'm always just seeking, trying to seek the next thing, you know, and I don't say no to a whole lot of things. I, I say yes to opportunities because you just don't know what where something will lead you know and so if there's ever a speaking engagement or if somebody reaches out to me and wants me to be a part of something i'll err towards doing it 
because you just, you never know. There was a collection of shoes that I sold for a friend years ago. This guy had like 300 pairs of shoes that he needed sold. And I was like, okay, I'll sell them for you. So I sold most of them on Instagram and then some of them on eBay. And this one dude that bought a pair of shoes in Brooklyn, bought a pair of shoes from this collection. And I actually messed up on the order. The shoes were like defective. I didn't take it through that whole pro the e-myth process because I don't have my staff of five people and I got lazy and complacent. I dealt with the order myself. I didn't quality control the shoes as well as I should have. And I messed up and I sent a bad pair of shoes to Brooklyn. And this guy, Sammy reaches out to me and he's like, Hey man, you know, these shoes aren't going to cut it. And he told me whatever was wrong with them. So, oh man, I'm so sorry. It's my bad. Let me send you a full refund, all your money and the shipping. And, you know, you can send the shoes back to me and I'll send you $20 extra to cover the shipping cost back. And so I took care of it, you know, and there's always going to be mishaps and mistakes. And when those things happen, you want to just own it and apologize and make it right and have good communication because communication is key. You know, if you sit back and don't speak up and just let things fester, bad things will happen. Well, I ended up taking care of this Sammy guy to, to his satisfaction. And he said to me, Hey, you know, I appreciate what you did making this right. I have, a huge collection of shoes that I'm looking to sell. You know, can I hire you to sell these shoes for me? Well, the shoes that this guy had used to be owned by Dame Dash, the co-founder of Rockefeller Records, Jay-Z's homie. This guy, Dame Dash, was a huge sneakerhead in the early 2000s. He put all his shoes in storage and didn't pay his, his storage fees. All his stuff was auctioned off. And this guy, Sammy in Brooklyn, ended up with everything. I'm talking... 600 pairs of shoes. He had all of Dame Dash's platinum records. We're talking all of Jay-Z's platinum records framed, Kanye West framed platinum records, Space Jam framed, like Aaliyah framed, just like there were like 60 framed, like legit platinum records with plaques to Dame Dash, blah, blah, blah. So I ended up getting to sell that collection for this guy, Sammy, and it was a six figure collection and it wasn't on my radar at all. And it only happened from selling this other guy's collection and performing good enough customer service to fix my mishap that it got me that next opportunity, you know? So it's like, I don't say no to opportunities and I try to make the most of everyone that I get when the people from the movie Air reached out to me and wanted my shoes in the movie, I was like, okay, great, this is perfect. And so I rented them the shoes and I got to go on the set. And then when I had the idea to sell the shoes, I called up eBay. I have a connection over at eBay because I've been selling on there for 23 years. And I called them up and I was like, hey, my shoes are featured in this Ben Affleck movie. People are gonna be very excited about it. I wanna sell these shoes. I wanna auction them off on eBay. eBay was all over it. They made this huge marketing campaign. We did a pop-up shop in Chicago. They flew me out to Chicago. They paid me to go there and just like talk about my shoes. And so I got to rent my shoes and get paid for it. I got to sell my shoes for a premium. I got paid by eBay to go to Chicago and do this pop-up shop. And it was all just 
making the most of an opportunity, you know? So be opportunistic. Yeah. That's very good That's advice. Good yeah. yeah. And I think it's also important to like treat everyone the same, like you were saying, because you never know where that connection is going to take you. So that was really good advice. Do you guys have any? Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, thank you very much. We yeah. appreciate your time and your insight and your stories. This was this was excellent. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. My pleasure. Okay. By the way, I'm very sorry. I realized the whole time I didn't even introduce them. Yeah. This is Chapin and this I'm is Chapin. Justin. <laughs> nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet yeah, you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, seriously. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. If you guys want to do a follow-up down the road, I'm happy to. Thank definitely. you. We'll definitely send it to you so you can share it with whoever. It'll probably be even today or I don't know. But yeah. Cool. Yeah. Great talking to you guys. Yeah. yeah you too. Talking Have a good rest of the day. Yeah. Thank you. You too. Picking and, yeah. Uh, everything else. Cool. Bye, guys. Bye. I, wait, do I just. Yeah.